This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Change the way you write with Grammarly Go, offering personalized generative AI communication assistance. Grammarly Go helps you ideate, compose, rewrite, and reply thoughtfully. Go to Grammarly.com slash go. Hey, it's Guy here. So today's show is all about what makes us, us. Ideas from genetic psychology and philosophy about why we humans are who we are. This episode first aired in July of 2016, but this time around, we've included an amazing new interview. It's with neuroscientist Anel Seth. And he says what makes us human is consciousness, our visual and emotional experience of the world around us and of ourselves in it. But how consciousness even happens and whether we can recreate it artificially, these are questions that we're still trying to figure out. You'll hear Anil Seth later on in this really mind-blowing episode, so please take a listen and enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered it's at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So imagine a big, thick book about the size of a dictionary. And inside that book, each and every page filled with just four letters. Just four letters. Printed over and over. A, G, C, and T. That's right. Four letters of DNA. DNA. The same four letters that every species on the planet has. Is made up of four letters, each representing a chemical compound, arranged in just such a way to make you, you. This is really where the information comes from, is not the four letters, but exactly how they're connected to each other. Mm. So is it A-G-C-T or A-A-A-G or A-A-C-T or A-A-A-T? This, by the way, is Sam Sternberg. I study gene editing technology. And Sam says, if you printed up all of the A's and G's and C's and T's it takes to complete your entire genetic code, which, by the way, is a lot of letters. The genome is 3.2 or so billion letters of DNA. You would have a lot of pages. Uh, If you had every page filled with A's, G's, C's, and T's, you'd have 800 dictionaries worth of genetic code. Something like that. For one person? For one person. So, So could you say that... Everything about us, uh, our, our, our physical traits, the color of our eyes, our characteristics, our personality traits, come from four chemicals? I would say that. Wow. And essentially all of the information to turn a single fertilized egg cell into an adult human is contained within that singular genome. Now, here's what's really crazy. 60 years ago, We didn't even know what the genome was. The answer to the question, what is life, was a mystery. 
And that, of course, has been a question I wanted to know. You know, Darwin explained life after it got started, but what was the essence of life? What was the essence of life? That was the question answered by James Watson, who spoke about it on the TED stage. And, uh, and Watson, along with his partner, Francis Crick, discovered the essence of who we are. Well, we got the answer on 28th of uh, February, 53. That was when Watson and Crick discovered the hidden language of DNA. You know, uh, if you just put A next to T and G next to C, you have a copying mechanism. So we saw how genetic information is carried. It's the order of the four bases. Watson and Crick's discovery helped us eventually to figure out how those four letters added up to 800 dictionaries for one human, which led to another huge milestone on the journey to understanding who we are. Earlier today at the White House, President Clinton announced the completion of the mapping of the human genome. This was in June of 2000. More than 1,000 researchers across six nations have revealed nearly all three billion letters of our miraculous genetic code. I congratulate all of you on this stunning and humbling achievement. And with the mapping of the human genome, we now had our greatest understanding yet of those 800 dictionaries and how all of the information in them adds up to a person. With this profound new knowledge, humankind is on the verge of gaining immense new power to heal. Genome science will have a real impact on all our lives and even more on the lives of our children. And so now, years on, the next big thing is almost here. Back then, we, you know, the government spent $3 billion to get that first genome sequenced. And now we're talking about companies that are offering your complete genome for just $1,000. Wow. And so I think we're going to continue to see our knowledge relating those four letters back to various traits increase in the coming years. What this means is that scientists are now closing in on the day when they'll be able to easily access the three billion letters of code that make you, you, and then isolate, even change, a particular chain of letters responsible for certain diseases or even certain physical or personality traits. There are many diseases whose genetic causes have been pinpointed precisely uh, most common genetic diseases, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, Huntington's disease. We've known about those, you know, since the 80s and 90s. And, and, and presumably we can pinpoint things that, that aren't diseases at all. Sure. To the shape of our noses. Yeah. That was a recent paper that was published. 23andMe just released a study uh, defining the associations between gene variants and whether or not you're a morning person. Wow. So we're talking about the kinds of things that wow. you chat about at the water cooler or on your way to get a coffee, and we're beginning to understand the DNA sequences that can explain those behaviors. It's, it's pretty mind-boggling. Who we are, what makes us us, it's one of the oldest questions out there. But new technology means we've never been closer to answering it in all kinds of ways that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. So today on the show, ideas from science, psychology, and philosophy about why we are who we are. So Sam Sternberg worked in the lab that developed one of the most groundbreaking innovations in gene editing. You may have heard of it. It's called CRISPR. And Sam described why it's such a big deal on the TED stage. We've known for over half a century that DNA contains the blueprints to make all living things. The genome can tell us a lot about ourselves. 
about our ancestry, our traits, and our disease susceptibilities. But there are things in the genome that you might not want to find out. For example, with two misspelled versions of a gene called APOE4, your chance of developing Alzheimer's disease is more than 10 times above average. And with a single diseased copy of the Huntington gene, you're virtually guaranteed Huntington's disease, a devastating form of neurodegeneration. And in both of these cases, there aren't currently any effective prevention or treatment options. And so this leaves many wondering, is this information even worth knowing? Well, what if we could do more than just learn that information by reading the genome, but actually rewrite the genome to cure genetic diseases at their source? What if editing the letters of DNA were as simple and easy as fixing typos in Microsoft Word? This is no longer science fiction, thanks to a new tool called CRISPR-Cas9. In the last three years, scientists have delivered CRISPR-Cas9 to human cells and precisely fixed the genetic mutations that cause cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, muscular dystrophy, and Huntington's disease. Genome editing in animals and cells is teaching us more about how cancers progress and revealing promising new drug targets. And companies have already raised almost a billion dollars to apply CRISPR-Cas9 as a therapy in patients. The CRISPR-Cas9 technology was co-invented in my PhD lab at the University of California, Berkeley, and many consider it to be one of the biggest breakthroughs of the last couple decades. But five years ago, when I started my PhD with Jennifer Doudna, CRISPR wasn't a technology at all. I mean, so you're saying this technology didn't even exist five years ago. I mean, how fast has this become a huge deal? So when I started my PhD in Jennifer's lab, that was 2010, you wouldn't find a single mention of CRISPR in, you know, the lay media unless it was talking about a vegetable CRISPR. Mm. Uh, but in the scientific literature, we're really talking a few dozen articles. So it was about maybe one a month was coming out. We now are at a point today where every day we have around five or ten articles being published. I think you won't, will not find a biologist in the world that doesn't know about CRISPR, and you probably won't find many left that aren't actively using CRISPR wow. to study whatever biological question they go after in their laboratories. Because ultimately, we're interested in understanding how life works. And if we know that DNA encodes life, then what better than a tool to rewrite that DNA and study what the effects are? Okay, the technical details of how CRISPR-Cas9 works are complicated. CRISPR, for instance, is an acronym for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And Cas9 is the key protein that makes it all work. But what you need to know is that CRISPR-Cas9 makes it easy and relatively inexpensive to edit genes in precise ways. Any genes in any living thing from bacteria to people. You know, coming back to the four letters of DNA, think about those 800 dictionaries filled with the same four letters. And now imagine that you have to search for a single page and not just a single page, but a single letter on that page and mark that site for a change. And maybe not any change, but an A to a T, not an A yeah. to a G or an A to a C. So for decades, this was the kind of pie in the sky science fiction idea that we could dream about doing. But no one was going to be able to do it because it just seemed like it would never be possible. So, but now with, with CRISPR, basically you can just go into the body, find that chain of letters causing a disease or something, and then just 
cut out one or two letters and replace it with, with the right letter? Absolutely. That's exactly what it does. And I'll just add one caveat. It's not been demonstrated yet in human patients. So if you had just said the same thing for human cells in a Petri dish, absolutely. With human patients comes the additional challenge of getting to the right cells. And that's the same challenge that every drug has to contend with, this this issue of delivery. And now it's just a matter of figuring out how to do that inside patients. Now, the next frontier will be really using this tool to improve human health. Can we achieve this ultimate goal of curing a genetic disease at its source, at the level of DNA, instead of just treating the downstream symptoms? Imagine a future in which we use stem cell technology together with CRISPR-Cas9 to remove diseased cells from a patient, repair them in the lab, and then transplant those corrected cells back into the body. Clinical trials are already underway that offer a cure for HIV-AIDS by editing the DNA in blood cells taken from HIV-positive patients. And I expect we're going to see more and more clinical trials with CRISPR entering the pipeline in the next few years. What really got folks speaking this past year was the report in May that for the first time ever, scientists used CRISPR-Cas9 to edit the DNA in human embryos. And unlike therapy in adult patients, this would introduce heritable changes that could be passed on to subsequent generations. You can imagine the controversy that this has provoked. And many fear that this technology could be abused, that it would usher in an era of eugenics or designer babies where a select few could pick and choose the best genes for their offspring. Others would say if we deny unborn children a technology that could ease human suffering or eradicate a disease, it would be immoral. CRISPR-Cas9 is forcing us to rethink what kind of world we want to live in. And there are weighty ethical issues to discuss about how we should use this technology and how it should be regulated. That's Sam Sternberg. When we come back in just a minute, a little more about how gene editing could change who we are and how we should feel about that. On the show today, ideas about what makes us, us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about who we are, what makes us, us. And we've been talking to biochemist Sam Sternberg, who's been explaining how a new gene editing technology called CRISPR-Cas9 
could make it cheap and easy to create humans who are, you're basically talking like superheroes, right? Like perfect vision, superhuman strength, perfect SAT scores, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's the science fictionalization of what CRISPR could allow. We have long lists of gene variants associated with certain traits, and some of those are silly, like whether or not you're a morning person. But we also have long lists of gene variants that are associated with things that might be desirable, like having extra strong bones, or leaner muscles, or lower sensitivity to pain, or lower risk of coronary heart disease. And as those lists continue to grow, we now have a technology that could, in theory, allow an individual to upgrade their genome. But why would that be the science fiction version if it seems like the the technology is so promising? Like if there was a you know, way to make a child more resilient to pain or, or give us all higher IQs, you can imagine that people would want to take advantage of all those things, right? I think they will. I think the challenge then is to is to think about how we can ensure that that technology, if it becomes available, is used safely, because we're certainly not there yet. But also, I think equitably. There's a great example in the world of HIV/AIDS. So it turns out one to two percent of all humans have a specific genetic mutation that is associated with HIV immunity, hmm. because this gene variant they have essentially masks their cells and the HIV virus can't get inside. So what if when you now delivered it into a fertilized egg cell, into a human embryo, so that that future child, even though neither of his or her parents have that mutation, will still have HIV immunity? We might assume, of course, they would want that, but it's still a game-changing idea that we would be able to make those decisions and not just select the traits they'll inherit from the parents, something we can already do with IVF and genetic testing, but kind of installing new variants into their genome that they would never have gotten from their parents. It's, it's like a preemptive solution for, for, for something that may never come, come to fruition. Like, like we are just saying, hey, just in case, we're going to give you immunity against this thing that you may or may not ever need. Absolutely. So do you consider that a, an enhancement or is that disease prevention? Because, <laughs> you know, many people see they divide... DNA rewriting or gene editing into kind of two different categories, one being disease prevention and one being genetic enhancement. But I think there are many that fall right smack dab in the middle. So yeah, with the with this HIV immunity gene, CCR5, that's disease prevention, but it's preventing a disease that you may never get. So in, in a way, it's kind of conferring a genetic advantage. And I'll just state again, that's a gene variant that exists naturally, but only 1% to 2% of humans have. Yeah. So it's clearly giving you an advantage above what we might call normal human species functioning. Right. But I mean, I mean, a part of me wonders, should we be doing that? You know, you know what I mean? Like, there's a process that just kind of has sort of happened since the beginning of human evolution, and we would completely be upending that. That's certainly one way of looking at it. And yet, evolution is inherently cruel. Hmm. For someone that has a genetic disease, that's kind of a, a crummy hand that they've been dealt so I think this comes down to the question of, of how sacred is the genome and is it something that should remain untouched, untainted, left alone? Of course, what we do in any one patient, that's a lifesaver for that patient. But when you think about human evolution over the course of hundreds or thousands of years, now we're talking about a technology that will not only affect that individual, but that individual's children, 
mm. and their children and their children and their children. And so that's where I think you have this very weighty issue of directing future evolution. You know, even saying that sounds hyperbolic, it sounds like science fiction, but I think the technology will get to a point where you could use it in embryos to install things like HIV immunity or stronger muscles, and maybe someday gene variants associated with higher IQ or being a morning person, if that's what you'd like to be, that's where things really take off. Sam Sternberg is working on a book about all this. It's called A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution. You can check out his TED Talk at TED.com. On today's show, we're asking a very important question, which is, who are we? Okay. By the way, do you have the answer? Do you know who we are? Uh, I know who I am. <laughs> but uh, I, mean, you know, I have a, a, uh, an inkling of who we are. This is Steven Pinker. I am a professor of psychology at Harvard University, and I write books on language, mind, and human nature. So, yeah, what, what is it that makes us who we are? Well, it, uh, there are some uh, intricately complex circuitry in the brain uh, fabricated over millions of years by natural selection that equips us with a set of motives and emotions and uh, mechanisms for learning and thinking that make us who we are. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. So to begin to understand what Steven Pinker just said and to understand what accounts for the differences between us, we kind of need to understand how far we've actually come in trying to figure this all out. So, Stephen, can you uh, can you help us with this? Okay, I'll do my best. Okay, just to get us started, human beings have debated nature versus nurture for hundreds, even thousands of years. That is, whether who we are, our personalities, our behaviors, are either entirely inherited from our parents or whether it all comes from the environment around us, that when we're born, our minds are basically like blank slates. And that all of its structure comes from socialization, culture, parenting, experience. That was Steven Pinker on the TED stage back in 2002. And this idea of the blank slate, it was especially popular in the second half of the 20th century. And it meant that a lot of us went through high school biology hearing stuff like this. Man has no nature from the historian Jose Ortega y Gasset. Man has no instincts from the anthropologist Ashley Montague. The human brain is capable of a full range of behaviors and predisposed to none from uh, the late scientist Stephen Jay Gould. Now, why should it have been such an appealing notion? Well, there are a number of political reasons why people have found it congenial. The foremost is that uh, if we're blank slates, then by definition, we are equal because zero equals zero equals zero. But if something is written on the slate, then some people could have more of it than others. And according to this line of thinking, that would justify discrimination and inequality. Another political fear of uh, human nature is that uh, if we were blank slates, we can perfect mankind, the age-old dream of the perfectibility of our species, through social engineering, whereas if we're born with certain instincts, then perhaps some of them might condemn us to selfishness, prejudice, and violence. First of all, there are a number of reasons to doubt that the human mind is a blank slate. 
and some of them just come from common sense. As many people have uh, told me over the years, anyone who's had more than one child knows that kids come into the world with certain temperaments and talents. It doesn't all come from the outside. Oh, and anyone who uh, has both a child and a house pet has surely noticed that the child exposed to speech will acquire a human language, whereas the house pet won't, presumably because of some innate difference between them. And anyone who's ever been in a heterosexual relationship knows that the minds of men and the minds of women are not indistinguishable. So for years, the debate about nature versus nurture has been just that, a debate. It's one or the other. But Steven Pinker has mainly argued that this shouldn't be a debate, that who we are comes down to both our genes and our environment. It's a mistake to think that uh, if there is an effect of the environment, that shows that we're blank slates. Or conversely, if there is such a thing as human nature, then we are uh, robots and we're programmed to uh, walk into walls and be completely insensitive to our environment. It's just the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it, he says, starts with our genome. Well, uh, the, the fact that we behave like humans and not like uh, orangutans or chimpanzees or uh, squirrels is uh, very much determined by our, our genome. So our genome sets us apart from animals, but it also sets us apart from each other. The differences between two individuals shows a, a pretty strong statistical effect of our genes. But then... Here's where environment comes in. Aside from uh, the fact that we have unique genomes, we have a unique uh, history of development. That is the process by which our brain gets wired up in utero in the first few years of life uh, is not dictated down to the last synapse by the genes. But there's space for random twists and turns in the wiring up of the brain that make even identical twins somewhat different. And of course, we have a, our unique lifelines. We have a unique trajectory of experience as we make our way through the world and uh, make decisions. And the decisions affect the way the world treats us, including other people. And we take away lessons from how we've been treated. And so we set off with a combination of our unique genome and our uh, chain of experiences. Okay, just to clarify, our environment is helping mold our genes. Oh, obviously. That is, if I was brought up as an Apache or as a, uh, uh, you know, a Japanese samurai or as a uh, Romanian peasant in the 14th century, there would be differences, undoubtedly, compared to who I am now. So we just talked to, to Sam Sternberg about, you know, like how being a morning person is, is possibly embedded in our genetic code. So, so what else are we probably born with? So uh, we know that uh, intelligence has a a, a big heritable component, which doesn't mean that it is uh, completely determined by our genes, but it does mean that some of the differences among people can be uh, attributed to differences among their genes. We know that uh, differences in personality, how conscientious, how agreeable, how neurotic, how extroverted uh, are influenced by, uh, by our genome, and even behavioral traits such as Uh, How likely are you to uh, be a smoker or an alcoholic? All of them show some influence of, uh, of our genetic endowment. And even though we can now probe our genomes to actually test some of these things out, Steven Pinker says there's another slightly bizarre old-fashioned method. Such as looking at similarities between identical twins who are separated at birth. Because identical twins separated at birth share all of their genes, but of course not 
their environments. And they show that uh, there is a, a pretty hefty statistical uh, influence of the genes. That is, if you know what one identical twin is like, you can make a lot of predictions about the other one who he or she may never have met, who may have grown up uh, an ocean and, and a cultural way. My favorite example is of uh, a pair of twins, one of whom was brought up uh, as a Catholic in a Nazi family in Germany. The other was brought up in a Jewish family in uh, Trinidad. When they walked into the lab in Minnesota, they were wearing identical navy blue shirts with epaulettes. Both of them liked to dip buttered toast in coffee. Both of them kept rubber bands around their wrists. Both of them flushed the toilet before using it as well as after. And both of them like to uh, surprise people by sneezing in crowded elevators to watch them jump. <laughs> now, uh, the story might seem too good to be true, but uh, when you administer uh, batteries of psychological tests, uh, you get the same results, namely identical twins separated at birth show uh, quite astonishing similarities. That's just unbelievable. So then, like, even things like, like habits or, or personality quirks are more or less assigned at birth. Well, they're, they're influenced at birth. I wouldn't say they're uh, assigned because um, there are probably some unpredictable changes that occur as the brain kind of gels in the first couple of years of life. Uh, there are changes that, that uh, unfold over the lifespan. Whether they are a response to outside forces or if they're just the way that the, the uh, brain spontaneously develops, we don't really know. Yeah. There are certainly ways in which anyone can be damaged. If you, uh, if you undergo uh, uh, trauma or abuse, that can leave lasting scars. But I think there is certainly a um, – there are statistical forces. There is, there's definitely pressure that makes one person different from another across the board. Yeah. So, I mean when, when you think about like who you are, I mean do, do you think you're the same person that you were when, when you were a child or, or a teenager or in your 20s as, as you are now? I, I do see myself as basically the same kind of person. I, I like the same music. I like the same foods. I like the same pastimes. I have, I have similar kinds of interests. Uh, and, and, and research on personality shows that there is a, a, a substantial amount of continuity in a person's character uh, as they go through life. But uh, there are certain changes that I see in myself that probably occur in most people as they, as they get older. Yeah. We get less neurotic. We get nicer. Uh, we get less anxious as we get older, all of us. But still, if one person is more anxious than another at the age of 20, uh, he'll probably be more anxious than the other person at the age of 70 as well, even if both of them are less anxious across the board. So, I mean, if, if we are more or less the same, right, at, at 20 or at 70, is it even possible to make big changes to, to who we are? I think we have the capacity to change our behavior, which is really what counts. Uh, I don't think that there's a lot of room to change who we are in the sense of a fundamentally nervous person becoming um, constitutionally calm and, uh, and easygoing. But certainly there are methods of, say, cognitive behavior therapy yeah. that are provably effective at reducing anxiety and phobias and treating depression. Yeah. Uh, and I, the thing is that, that those don't appeal to uh, some ethereal, immaterial soul. They uh, are ways of acting on our neural circuitry. We have to keep in mind that our neural circuitry is so intricately complex and has been shaped by evolution to interact with the world through our social uh, mechanisms of, of interacting, through language, through facial expression, through body language, 
that there are ways of, of changing our feelings and thoughts by the old-fashioned route of conversation and example and, uh, and, and art and uh, evidence-based psychotherapy. So there is scope for, for a range of behavior within the envelope of a given personality type. And we can probe the outside of the envelope that the genes make available to us. Do you, when you think about what, what animates a person, do you think that it can be figured out pretty logically? Or do you think that huge parts of it are just mysterious? Huge parts of it are, are certainly mysterious because the interactions are so unfathomably complex. Yeah. There are uh, 10 to 100 billion cells in the brain connected by 100 trillion synapses. And no one can keep track of all of them, even in a computer simulation. We also know that chance plays an enormous role above and beyond the role of either genes or environments. Uh, we can see this in identical twins who are brought up together. Not, not the exotic cases of the twins separated at birth, but just the kind of twins that all of us know. If you know a, a pair of twins, you know that they're, 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 they're more similar than two people plucked off the street at random, but they're unique individuals. Yeah. They're, they, you, won't, you don't confuse them when, once you know them. And sometimes they're not friends. And sometimes they're not friends, in, indeed. Uh, now, how do you account for those differences? It's not their uh, genes, at least not the ones they inherited from their parents. There could be some, uh, a few mutations that each one uh, idiosyncratically acquired. Uh, it's not their, by and large, their environments because they grew up with the same parents, the same school, the same house, the same older sibs, the same younger sibs. You're really forced to the conclusion that uh, there's an enormous role for, uh, for chance, for the role of the dice in uh, who we become because uh, two people who have Everything in common, both in the genes and the environmental level, nonetheless don't turn out to be indistinguishable. Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker has given several TED Talks, including this one about the blank slate. You can find all of them at TED.com. More ideas about what makes us us? That's in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how cash can be part of a balanced savings strategy for investors. Oftentimes people think of their cash as the money they're using, but when there's a high rate environment, your cash can also be a form of savings. So savings can sit in your cash account and savings can sit in an investing account. And on average and over time, investments go up, but in a high interest rate environment, you can get a more predictable return in a high yield savings account. And so investors can choose both strategies, an investment strategy, as well as a cash strategy to both protect your principal because cash doesn't go down the way markets can, but also to earn a high yield. Learn more about high yield cash accounts at betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Support for NPR and the following message come from NYU Stern. What makes a good leader great? It's your own ambition, coupled with the support you need to take that next great leap. With NYU Stern's Executive MBA program in Washington, D.C., that's what you get. A robust curriculum balanced with convenience. Classes held one Friday, Saturday, Sunday a month in downtown D.C. Be open to excellence. Search NYU Stern EMBA in D.C. for more information. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. 
I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about who we are, what makes us, us. And according to humorist Zay Frank in this short talk, it's not that complicated. Here he is on the TED stage. This is the human test, a test to see if you are a human. Please raise your hand if something applies to you. Are we agreed? Yes? Then let's begin. Have you ever eaten a booger long past your childhood? It's okay, it's safe here. Have you ever made a small weird sound when you remembered something embarrassing? Have you ever purposely lowercase the first letter of a text in order to come across as sad or disappointed? Okay. Have you ever ended a text with a period as a sign of aggression? Okay. Period. Have you ever laughed or smiled when someone said something to you and then spent the rest of the day wondering why you reacted that way? Yes. Have you ever seemed to lose your airplane ticket a thousand times as you walked from the check-in to the gate? Yes. Have you ever put on a pair of pants and then much later realized that there was a loose sock smushed up against your thigh? Good. Have you ever tried to guess someone else's password so many times that it locked their account? Hmm. Have you ever had a nagging feeling that one day you will be discovered as a fraud? Yes, it's safe here. (laughs) Have you ever hoped that there was some ability you hadn't discovered yet that you were just naturally great at? (laughs) Mm. Have you ever broken something in real life and then found yourself looking for an undo button in real life? Have you ever marveled at how someone you thought was so ordinary could suddenly become so beautiful? Have you ever stared at your phone smiling like an idiot while texting with someone? Have you ever subsequently texted that person the phrase, I'm staring at the phone smiling like an idiot? Have you ever been tempted to and then gave in to the temptation of looking through someone else's phone? Have you ever had a conversation with yourself and then suddenly realized you're a real (laughs) to yourself? (laughs) Has your phone ever run out of a battery in the middle of an argument and it sort of felt like the phone was breaking up with both of you? Have you ever thought that working on an issue between you was futile because it should just be easier than this, or this is supposed to happen just naturally? Have you ever realized that very little in the long run just happens naturally? Have you ever woken up blissfully and suddenly been flooded by the awful remembrance that someone had left you? Have you ever lost the ability to imagine a future without a person that no longer was in your life? 
Have you ever looked back on that event with the sad smile of autumn and the realization that futures will happen regardless? Congratulations. You have now completed the test. You are all human. That's writer and humorist Zay Frank. He's got a couple other great talks at TED.com. On the show today, what makes us us? Can you explain what it means to be conscious? Like, what is it? Consciousness is the most familiar thing for any of us. I mean, we all know the difference between being conscious and not being conscious. This is Anil Seth. He's a professor of neuroscience at the University of Sussex in the UK. Consciousness is any kind of experience at all, whether it's a visual experience of the world around us, whether it's an emotional experience of feeling sad or jealousy or happy or excited, uh, from experiences of intending to do something or of being the cause of something that happens. Consciousness is the word that we use to circumscribe all the different kinds of experiences that that we can have. Hmm. I think to put it most simply, for a conscious system, there is something it is like to be that system, whereas for something that isn't conscious, there isn't. And how consciousness even happens, and if we can recreate it artificially, is a question that we're still trying to figure out. Because what's more fundamental about being a human than knowing we exist? And Seth explains more from the TED stage. Well, answering this question is so important because consciousness for each of us is all there is. Without it, There's no world, there's no self, there's nothing at all. And when we suffer, we suffer consciously, whether it's through mental illness or pain. And if we can experience joy and suffering, what about other animals? Might they be conscious too? Do they also have a sense of self? And as computers get faster and smarter, maybe there'll come a point, maybe not too far away, when my iPhone develops a sense of its own existence. Now, I actually think the prospects for a conscious AI are pretty remote. In the story I'm going to tell you, our conscious experiences of the world around us and of ourselves within it are kinds of controlled hallucinations that happen with, through, and because of our living bodies. Um, I love this idea of a controlled hallucination. Is, is, that, is that what we experience? Is that how we experience the world, that it's... It's a controlled hallucination. We're just essentially hallucinating all the time. I love this phrase. I wish I could take credit for it, but but I can't. But I love the phrase because it points out that everything that we perceive, consciously or unconsciously, but let's talk about consciousness for now, is a construction of the brain. I mean, it's easy to think that we open our eyes and objective reality is revealed to us Mm. through the windows of our eyes. Yeah. What conscious perception is, is basically just somebody sitting inside our skull looking out there and they see a red table or they Mm -hmm. see a person. I'm at a baseball game, there's the batter, there's the hit. That's real, that's reality. That's right. But the truth is that all perceptions are acts of interpretation. They're acts of informed guesswork that the brain applies when it encounters sensory data. I think that the way I came to think of this is, is that you know, there, there is no light in the skull and there's no sound. There's All that's going on in the brain are electrical impulses whizzing around uh, in mm. complex patterns. And out of all this, all this pattern-making in the brain, a world 
appears. And in some sense, we've, we've known this for a long time. So since Newton, it's been pretty clear that colours, you know, red, yellow, green, whatever, colours are not objective properties of objects in the world. They are attributes of, of reflected light. And, and the brain, the visual system, will make inferences based on wavelengths of light about what colour something is. Uh, so something as basic as colour is not something that we just passively receive from the world. We actively attribute it to things out there in the world. And the idea of controlled hallucination is, is just that, well, this applies to everything. Hmm. I mean, this applies to everything that we perceive. And not just perceptions of things out there in the world, but also it applies to our perceptions of ourself, of our body, of our memories, of our sense of agency, of our sense of volition. That everything that we perceive is a construction. But it's, it's not a random construction. It's construction, it's a best guess that is reined in by the sensory data at all times. Uh, which is why most of us agree when we look at a, a table that we will say, yeah, I see a table, you see a table. And we both see the same thing. And that's because these aren't just random constructions. They're constrained by the sensory data that we get. And that's why I think the term controlled hallucination is very appropriate. Here's one more example, which shows just how quickly the brain can use new predictions to change what we consciously experience. Have a listen to this. Sounded strange, right? Have a listen again and see if you can get anything. Still strange. Now listen to this. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. <laughs> Which I do. Um, so you heard some words there, right? Now listen to the first sound again. I'm just going to replay it. Yeah? So you can now hear words there. Once more for luck. Okay, so what's going on here is, is the, the remarkable thing is the sensory information coming into the brain hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is your brain's best guess of the causes of that sensory information, and that changes what you consciously hear. Now, all this puts the brain basis of perception in a bit of a different light. Instead of perception depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world, we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. How much agency do we have over our consciousness? Like, is it, is it a fixed thing, or, or are, are we able to shape it? Can we actively shape it? I think this gets really at the heart of what people think about when they think about the essence of themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and I find this when, when talking about consciousness uh, to people in general, you can give them an explanation of you know, the fact that colors are constructions and people are happy with that. You show them optical illusions and so on, they're happy with that. Then you can tell them that your experience of what is your body is also a construction and give some evidence for that. And you know, people, okay, fair enough. But then if you try to make the argument that their experience of volition, of, in scare quotes, free will, 
is also a construction of the brain and it's not the thing that is pulling the strings inside your head making you do this or that. Mm. That's when we start to feel very uncomfortable. And I must admit I do too because I still experience myself as in control of my actions, at least of some of them. And, of course, that's what the experience of volition is useful for. It's useful for this thing that is my organism to distinguish those actions that are relatively internally caused from those that are relatively externally caused. So everything that I do, you know, one extreme is I put my hand on a hot stove and I retract my arm without even realizing it. That's a reflex. That's an externally driven action. It would be wrong to experience that as volitional. But my experience of coming to the studio this morning to record this was was highly volitional. You know, I, I decided to do it and I got in the cab and I, I came here. Yeah. And that's very useful to distinguish these different kinds of of, of actions, but it doesn't mean that the experience of volition caused the action. And this doesn't mean that volitional behavior doesn't exist. Of course, it's a thing. And every action that we experience as voluntary is shaped by our whole history of previous voluntary actions um, that we've executed during our lifetimes, of our social and cultural context, of our developmental and, and even our evolutionary heritage. Indeed, there are all of these factors play in to every action that we do, whether we experience it as volitional or not. So, I mean, the thing about consciousness is, is that's what makes us us, right? Like, like that's what makes us human. But there are a lot of people in the world who, who believe that we are not that far off from, like, AI becoming conscious, right? And, and behaving and responding and thinking as we do. That's right. I mean, but I think that belief is driven by a couple of factors. One factor is just this this cultural uh, phenomenon. I mean, we've had this throughout culture of, of robots developing intelligence and then becoming conscious. Yeah, we Prometheus, see this, right? Yeah. We, we see this Prometheus. We see this with Terminator. We see this with Blade Runner um, in, in varying different ways. You know, I love Blade Runner. I'm a bit frustrated mm. by the Terminator view of, of future technology and robots. We see this in the beautiful film Ex Machina, which I think really interrogates the philosophical issues behind this in a hugely interesting way. But yeah, there's this cultural trope that intelligence and consciousness go together and that AI will develop awareness at some point. Um, The other factor that's playing into it, and this is the one I think is perhaps a bit more damaging, is what I have come to call a pernicious anthropocentrism. And this is Hmm. the idea that you know, we humans, we think, well, what's special about us? We're always trying to find out what's special about us. Maybe it's not that we have a soul and other animals don't. Well, maybe it's that we're intelligent. Maybe we have minds that are somehow different, an order of magnitude different from the minds of other creatures or of, or of objects. It's intelligence that sets us apart and makes us special. And we're also conscious. So there's this tendency we have to associate these two things together. Like, well, you know, we're intelligent and we're conscious. So intelligence and consciousness should go together. But actually... That really doesn't have to be the case. You certainly don't have to be very intelligent in order to experience pain and suffering. And so we can imagine that there are plenty of other animals that may not score very highly on our very human-centric measure of intelligence that nonetheless have vivid conscious experiences. So to me, these things weigh against the idea that, that AI is headed on an inevitable trajectory towards being conscious. 
But yeah, it's certainly possible that the near future will see us being able to build artifacts that give the impression of being conscious. And that, to me, picks out a very interesting space of the future. What will happen to our interactions with each other and with other animals when our environments are populated by things that give the appearance of being conscious and of being intelligent, but for which we have no way, really, of knowing whether they are or not, or certainly no confidence in saying that they are conscious. Is that going to change the way we behave to things that are actually conscious? I think that's uh, definitely a worry. NL Seth, he's a professor of neuroscience at the University of Sussex. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Why sell yourself short When you can have everything that you want I'd like the mind of a brilliant man, please I'll take the wings of a hummingbird They say DNA Makes us who we are Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week, What Makes Us, Us. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com and the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Casey Herman, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Rachel Faulkner. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.